Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. World Wildlife Day is coming up on Sunday, March 3rd, so I decided that we were in need of a special episode to help us celebrate. Joining me today is Colby Laux, the Vice President and Deputy Lead for World Wildlife Fund's Wildlife Program. He also runs their Wildlife Technology Innovation Lab, where they use technology to come up with solutions to wildlife conservation problems. You're going to learn about a bunch of different types of technology in this episode and how it's used to help animals across the globe. We'll even learn about some cool things that Colby and his team are doing with artificial intelligence, which is quickly rising in popularity. So let's get into the episode and learn more about Colby. Hi, Colby. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I can't wait to learn uh, more about you and, and what you do at the World Wildlife Fund. Yeah, looking forward to it. Great. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in wildlife conservation? Sure, yeah. As a kid, I was outdoors a lot, went camping with my dad and hiking the Appalachian Trail. So it was just had a lot of just positive outdoor experiences. I also had an amazing biology teacher in high school, and that led me to be a biology major and in college. Took some ecology courses, so I went to grad school for ecosystem management, and then got introduced to this program or this field of study called Geographic Information Systems, which is called GIS, just a fancy way of saying or showing ways to use maps to do analyses and tried to find answers and it was very spatial and that's the way my brain worked and once I saw that I was I was off and running that was what actually led to my first job at World Wildlife Fund. Wow that's awesome and that's yeah. uh great just hearing that a great teacher changed the trajectory of your life because I used to be a biology teacher so that <laughs> warms my heart. <laughs> no yeah it was great I mean there's more towards the uh biology of of people and not as much in the environment this is back see here. That would have been the 80s to give how old I am. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, I, I agree. I think a really good teacher can set a course for someone's future. And yeah, that's awesome. Biology teachers are the best. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank you. <laughs> and you're now the vice president and deputy lead of the World Wildlife Fund's wildlife program. Could you talk about your role within the organization? Yeah, sure. So our focus um, on our wildlife team is to conserve wildlife and their habitat uh, around the world. A lot of our work's in Africa, Asia, and uh, some in South America. Uh, a lot entails working with communities who are live right beside the wildlife areas oftentimes to uh, stopping poaching and trafficking of wildlife, which has been a, 
one of the major drivers of wildlife loss. I also lead our technology program. So how can we use technology in innovative ways to also conserve wildlife? So uh, we have a lot of interesting things uh, across the globe. That's great. And I'd love to start talking about some of that technology that you're using. So you're using wireless technology to track elephants. Can you talk about the methodology behind that and why it's important to track elephants in the first place? Yeah, this is some really new tech that uh, we just test, or just started piloting in August, so just about six months ago from the recording of this. And uh, the technology is going to, I'll say it, it's all, an awful acronym. It's called LoRaWAN, which stands for Long Range Wide Area Network. Um, and you don't need to remember it except, or your listeners, except that essentially the best comparison I can have is it's like your home's Wi-Fi with two really, really big differences. The first one is your Wi-Fi can maybe get around your house, maybe not even, depending on how, how it's set up. LoRa, which is a short for LoRaWAN, can go about 10 or 15 miles. Now the trade-off is while you can stream movies, send photos, stream blah, blah, this one to be able to send information so far, I can only send small packets of information like GPS coordinates. And so then we were able to capitalize on that. And we developed with a, a partner called Smart Parks these collars that you can be put on elephants that would send GPS information to these LoRa. They're essentially like their routers, like they're as big as your router. And we put them up on towers. And so uh, this uh, pilot we did was in uh, Zambia outside of Kufui National Park. We put a bunch of these uh, little router gateways up, these LoRa gateways, and essentially set up a, a private network, just like almost like your home Wi-Fi is a private network. And we put 10 of these collars on orphaned elephants. Another one of our partners called Game Rangers International has an orphaned elephant release facility right there. What they do is they're oftentimes they're, they're juveniles, they're small, their moms have maybe been poached, a human-wildlife conflict, died for other reasons. And so what the focus of this elephant release facility is to is to slowly introduce them to the wild and so they let them go out they kind of watch them and see where they go and they come back and protect them at night and then one day as they're older they just go out and they never come back they integrate with the wild herds and so as they're in this process they really wanted to know where are these elephants going or are they which herd are they with and so that's where we stepped up with these laura elephant collars and uh, so far, it's going pretty well. And being able to track the elephants, making sure they don't come into conflict with people. If there's any issues, these are, you know, orphans. So that sometimes they might have some, some trouble with wild elephants. So it's being able to make sure we can conserve and protect them. Wow, that's really interesting. And I'm assuming those, those collars must be pretty, pretty large. <laughs> you, know, you know, actually, compared to like, so the traditional way of doing this is using satellite collars. I'm holding my hand up. You won't be able to see that. But there's about half the size of satellite collars, and that's because satellite collars are what they, they, they say they are. They send a signal up to the satellite in space and then come back down, and that takes a lot more battery power. So ultimately what's making these smaller is they have need a lot less battery power to send it essentially 10, 15 kilometers away. And so they can be half the size of traditional collars, also half the weight, so it's not as much of a burden. It's also like your Wi-Fi network, so we can talk to these things. We can be like, hey, where are you? Or you're giving us a signal every 15 minutes. Why don't you give us a signal every five minutes? Because we're going to come try to find out where you are and you want to know. 
versus like traditional collars, like GPS collars, you might get one signal or two signals a day. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of pluses in this new technology. That's really interesting. And also another technology is thermal cameras. And can you talk about how they were used to catch poachers in the Maasai Mara? Yeah, so the Maasai Mara is, is in Kenya. When you watch the classic scenes of Africa, these big rolling plains, that's the Maasai Mara. And so about eight years ago, myself and some of our my colleagues went to the Maasai. And in, in 2015-16 was a, about the height of poaching for elephants and rhinos in Africa. It was quite bad. It was as bad as it's been in decades. And we went out to the rangers and we were like, hey, man, what's going on? Is there any tech that we could help you with and they said well here's what here's the deal is most of the poaching happens at night and our flashlights can see what 10 20 feet 20 or so maybe 30 feet it's like looking for a needle in a haystack in these big rolling planes in the Masamara. so if you can help us find the poachers at night that would be super cool so we went back and we my colleague eric becker ended up finding these thermal cameras so uh this u.s company called fleer makes these thermal cameras. Traditionally, they're used to protect hardened sites, dams, nuclear facilities, things like that. And we said, hey, you know what? These these are, these are cameras are thermal. Thermal detects heat. It doesn't need any light. So they're perfect for mi- using in the middle of the night. They can see. So what if we put one of these cameras on top of one of the Ranger vehicles, on top of a pan tilt, so it zooms like you're you know playing a Game Boy or something. And so they would go out just at sunset, set up a place where they think the poachers would be coming. Maybe there's animals in front of us, you know. And so it was highly successful. So these cameras can see one to two miles. So we went from allowing rangers to see like 30 feet to having a two-mile radius around this truck. And yeah, and it was highly successful. The poaching was reduced. The wildlife was saved. It also allows the rangers who have to try to catch these poachers to know is it one person or seven people they knew what they're getting in with, so it reduced the potential conflict. So that is a really cool uh, example that I can think of that we've been leading and kind of pioneering in Africa. Yeah, that that's really awesome. So I'm, I'm sure that saved a lot of a lot of animals' lives. So that's great. The thermal cameras were also used to track one of the last black rhinos. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So another area where we focused on was putting these long-range thermal cameras. In, in some parks in Kenya, along the perimeters, a lot of illegal intrusions of the poachers were trying to come in. And so we put up a, essentially a trip line of, of these thermal cameras hooked together that cover the entire perimeter of the park. And again, in these times of high poaching pressure, which still exists, and these are actually pretty cool. These cameras, we added an AI to it. So we basically trained the cameras to detect humans as well as rhinos and elephants, lions, zebras. So anytime they're along the edge of the park, if a human walked through, it would send an alert to the rangers. It'd be like, hey, camera three just had an, an alert, and they would look at it, and then they would be able to send some rangers. And these parks are chock full of black rhinos. Kenya has the second highest population of black rhinos after South Africa. So it's super important for endangered species. And these guys were getting poached. And so we caught several poachers that way. And rhino poaching, an elephant to a certain extent as well, is mostly being driven by a demand out of Asia. So these were like poaching gangs. They weren't locals. It wasn't for local consumption. It wasn't. These were like hitmen only for rhinos. Wow. And so we were catching these guys. That was, that's also pretty cool. 
that's that's really interesting and i'm i'm assuming with the advancement of ai you can kind of start to use this in different ways for animal conservation you know this is an exciting time if you're into conservation and into technology uh, it's super exciting times I, I, I sometimes like if i were coming up as a, a youngster nowadays i would be totally in this field because with ai batteries cloud computing all these different sensors are out there, whether it's audio sensors or the FLIR. I mean, it's almost the sky's the limit. However creative you can be to try to find animals or protect animals, there's probably some possibilities out there. So, yeah. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. That's great. And are there any technologies that you're really excited about that maybe are just starting to be implemented? Yeah, there is one I think has so much promise. Uh, It's called environmental DNA. We call it eDNA. Environmental DNA is essentially DNA. So you and I, if we were walking on, going for a hike, and we were walking through, let's say the mountains of of Pennsylvania, because that's where I'm from, we would shed DNA just walking, like just happens. And all animals do that as well as plants. And so what we've found is if you just go to the bottom of a river that has like a watershed and run water through some filters and then do some fancy pants DNA analysis, spending an afternoon will, f- will tell you is it'll give you a list of hundreds or all the species in that watershed. And that would be way more efficient in terms of time and money than other traditional ways such as putting up camera traps or audio traps or walking around and doing transects. So what this can do is tell you amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, everything that's there in an afternoon of, you know, collecting of DNA through a water filter of some sort. So that holds a lot of promise for massive amounts of sampling for wildlife. Also, other rare wildlife, like the Sumatran rhino, super rare, only a couple hundred left. Uh, you could put out 100 camera traps out there and not find it. It just, it's just hard. But you could possibly, with eDNA in an afternoon, determine if there's an, a, a, a Sumatran rhino in your watershed. So that one holds super great promise. DNA in general, we're also doing another version of DNA analysis. We're scraping the elephant poop, dung, if you want to be super techie. So scraping elephant dung. And then, do, again, doing some fancy pants DNA analysis, we can tell if they're related from like country A to country B. So between Botswana, let's say, and Zambia. If they're related, that means those animals used to migrate back and forth. So you could almost find migrations that might not be happening now because humans have now maybe built a road there and stopped the migration. But you can almost see and find where these migrations are through the DNA analysis. So we're doing a lot of cool things. So again, if I was like a young person getting a PhD coming up through, I would be maybe in this space too. (laughs) That is absolutely insane. And the first one, I can imagine like 
there's been a lot of times where we've thought an animal to be extinct and then find it 20 years later in the wild. So that could really almost eliminate that problem. Another colleague of mine found an extinct or extirpated, which is basically means it's maybe not extinct, but it's not been seen in that place for like super long time. In Myanmar, they did this in Myanmar or Burma. And they, yeah, they found several species that are like, we didn't know that these species were in this country. So exactly right. That's a good observation. That is really cool. Some of this technology is unbelievable. Now, before we hear more about Colby's view of wildlife conservation, let's take a little break. Time for today's trivia question. In what year did the United Nations first declare that March 3rd would be World Wildlife Day? The answer is December of 2013. So the first official World Wildlife Day would have been in 2014. Now let's get back into the interview. How has your perspective of wildlife conservation changed from the time that you started working at WWF to now? Yeah, good question. You know, when I first started, I think a lot of the work was about where the where of conservation, like where are the biodiversity hotspots? Where are the remaining forests? Where do animals migrate? And while the where is still important, I think now a lot of it is about the how of conservation. So like, how do we conserve those biodiversity hotspots? How can we more efficiently measure and find biodiversity? How can we remove plastics from the ocean? How do we switch to renewable energy? So I feel like for me, that's where it's come back from just trying to catalog where it is, although eDNA still is needed to catalog where, where things are because a lot of the planet does not know what biodiversity they have. It's more about the how, and that's also quite challenging too. Yeah, definitely. That brings up its own sort of issues. Yeah, I mean, essentially, probably that's why you know, WWF exists at some level, right? So like, how how can we help solve these problems and, and these answers? So anyways, for me, I think that's what I've seen. And also, I guess just the technology over the last 20 years has gone from, you know, we have an iPhone now that's in your, in your pocket, perhaps, or some other smartphone that's going to be probably significantly faster than the fastest computer on earth in the year 2000, right? So like the computing power and the ability to use AI and that's growing like leaps and bounds is also just, that wasn't even a thought process back in the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. And I know there's tons of stuff to talk about. Maybe some of the main actions that humans are taking that have the largest negative impact on the ecosystems and what can we do to stop these things from happening? Yeah, well, the two big drivers of biodiversity loss and loss of wildlife is loss of habitat or the degradation of habitat, places where they live, and poaching or overexploitation. Again, super big word for saying we're, we're taking too many of them out of off the earth. So, for example, classic bit of work that we're focused on is trying to reduce bycatch. So when you're out there fishing, you have these big fishing fleets and they're focusing on one, but they get a you know, couple sharks and those sharks are bycatch, they die through the methods of fishing. 
and it adds up. So we're, we're talking about millions of animals every year, sea turtles, etc. So, you know, there are ways to do fishing or fishing methods or to reduce bycatch. They're out there. So looking at food labels to see if it's like MSC certified or, or things like that. I think just educating yourself, be creative about how you go about making your purchase. I think purchase power for all of us is another way that you can control the demand. The other side of it is most of the habitat being lost now is being cut down to put in food systems. You know, a systemic change of how food's produced, what you buy is an important thought. These are big issues. I guess maybe more at home, I would say, is try to reduce food waste. You know, eat what you buy, recycle or, or maybe compost if you don't eat it. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's just so many things that go into what you just said, habitat loss, could be the climate change and building new developments and, like you said, food production. So there's just so many things that go into it. Yeah, yeah, you said climate change and appropriately so. I mean, it's an important issue that is affecting wildlife. And so we're seeing, and even in, even here and affecting us, you know, droughts, floods, hurricanes, more severe weather, and that also impacts wildlife, especially the droughts. So then you have droughts of causing, you know, massive die-offs of wildlife and things. So things you can do to reduce our emissions would be also a path forward. Yeah, definitely. And is there any way that people at home can use technology in order to help with animal conservation? Yeah, as I mentioned, one of the main drivers is illegal poaching or overexploitation of wildlife. And we've noticed, and another one of my colleagues has led the, the charge in this in this respect, is especially during COVID, a lot of the trade of wildlife went from like brick and mortar stores where like you show up, you know, maybe in an alley or a dodgy pet store, someplace that's illegal to do, has moved online. So now through the proliferation of social media companies and other ways to, of buying and selling and online, that's like, you, you know, you can go to almost any of these and find ways to buy and sell things. Well, people are buying and selling illegal wildlife and the illegal wildlife trade has basically exploded on the internet and on social media. So that would be a place where, you know, if you see that kind of actions, you know, one, don't don't buy, don't purchase. But there's also ways increasingly of how you can help report that. And, and to that end, we set up this uh, consortium, a lot of NGOs and like over 45 social media companies called nwildlifetraffickingonline.org. And that is uh, a consortium where all of, a lot of these, like Instagram, Facebook, like all the, all the ones you would probably know about, have committed to bringing it down and removing any ads for illegal wildlife. So if you, you can, there's a process where you can help report that. Yeah, so that would be one way. And I think going off of that with the illegal wildlife trade, it could be something that you see that you don't really think anything of, like people posting videos of themselves having a pet monkey or something, and then it sparks other people to be like, hey, I want a pet monkey or a pet sloth or something. And then that can be really detrimental to that species. Absolutely. Good point. And we definitely try where we can to intercede where we can. Not always work, but ultimately at the end of the day, it, you know, if you see something, say something, right? And this website can help facilitate that. Definitely. And this will be my last question, but how can people support you? 
I think anytime you can become more educated about any issue, and this issue would be conservation or wildlife conservation, you're going to be a you're going to be smarter for it, and you're going to be able to identify and be creative for developing your own solutions or innovative solutions. Obviously, you could go to worldwildlife.org. How you can we have tons of resources there to educate you, as well as resources for teachers such as yourself. It's called Wild Classroom. We know you have tough jobs. And you're, you're working, you're working hard. And so it's like a full package of how you can teach a class on how to reduce plastic pollution or how to conserve elephants, et cetera, like that. So some of the ways that you can go about and support our work. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to have to take a look at that. It sounds really cool. Well, Colby, thank you so much for coming on again. I really appreciate it. I learned so much about all this cool technology. It kind of gets me really excited for what's to come with animal conservation. Well, it's been a joy on my end. I love talking about this, and um, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Colby is such an awesome person who's really an innovator in the world of wildlife conservation. I think a lot of us view new technology as being harmful to the environment, and it definitely can be, but it's really cool to see technology being used to save our environment instead. I want to thank Colby again for being such an amazing guest, and you should all go check out WWF at worldwildlife.org to learn more about ways to help support and protect wildlife across the globe. And again, happy World Wildlife Day! Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explore the world of technology in conservation. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife or on TikTok at onwildlife. And don't forget to tune in a few weeks from now for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. to On Wildlife with Alex Ray. On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details. Mm-hmm.